Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. A book that I read about 10 years ago and I refer to every so often in church is a book called Unchristian. Unchristian is a look at how younger people view Christianity, the church. It was written about 10 years ago and so some of the data is older and the, the people are older in it. But Dave Kenneman, Gabe Lyons with the Barna Group, they had researched the public opinion of young people, 16 to 29 uh, throughout the United States. And they asked the question, when you think of a Christian, what comes to your mind? And in the book, these were the top five responses and the percentage of people that actually indicated that. 91% said, when I think of a Christian, I think of someone who's anti-homosexual. Number two, when I think of a Christian, I think of someone who's judgmental. That was 87%. Or 85% said, when I think of a Christian, I think of someone who's hypocritical. They're, they're fakers. Uh, number four, old-fashioned, 78%. They're outdated. It's outmoded. It's dying away. It's going to be the last vestige of our you know, old part of America as we move into the new part without church. Or five was too political. 75% said the church is too involved in politics. Now, there's nowhere in there that talks about the love of God, the love of Jesus, the love of others, serving other people, helping the poor, helping the homeless, doing anything good in the community. Young people, by and large, in the United States today are looking at, you and me are looking at what we have here by way of church, weekend gatherings, buildings, programs, all the things that we do and saying, you know, it's really outdated, it's, out, it's, it's just outlived, and it's really not effective anymore. And it's the antithesis of where we're going in the future. And, you know, I think if we would be honest that by and large, the reason Young people have said that we're anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical, old-fashioned, and too political is because we are. Now, that's a harsh statement. Now, when I say we, I'm talking about churches in America. You know, I I love my church. I really do. And I think Sunrise is is doing some great work. And I know when I encounter people or other people say, hey, I said I was at Sunrise, I heard good things, and I understand that. But by and large, the tide that we're trying to fight that keeps coming in and it has a strong current is simply this, that we have not represented Jesus very well in our world today. And we have failed the message of Jesus. And we've done it by the way we live and the way we act toward outsiders. That we might have a good thing going on inside our buildings and we might sing and you know, we might hear messages and we might do good things. But people outside, they don't see that. One of the quotes from the book, uh, I think, is really, really powerful and telling. He says, Jesus was called a friend of sinners, relentlessly pursuing the downtrodden, 
What an irony that today his followers are seen in the opposite light. How can people love God whom they can't see if those of us who claim to represent him don't respond to outsiders with love? That's a little quote of scripture there, right? When people think of God, if they think of us, what does that mean? Do they think of God as a loving God, but his people as hateful people? It's like the bumper sticker, Lord, save me from your followers, right? You know, you're okay, but I can't stand your people. What, what's wrong? What happened to us? Uh, a couple of years ago, Andy Stanley preaching a sermon, it really gripped my heart. He said it this way. Christians are seen as judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they're the only ones going to heaven and who secretly relish the fact that everybody else is going to hell. That's how Christianity is perceived in our world today. And we who live in the Pacific Northwest, we know that it's even harder to present the life of Christ. We don't live in the South. We don't live in other parts of the United States that might be more receptive. We live in the location where the least amount of people attend church. Oregon and Washington, we're always fighting to get that least churched population, right? Because we're, we're the pioneers. We're the ones that left the East. We, 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 we paved new ground and we don't need anybody telling us what to do. And so we are embedded in a culture that by and large has rejected the idea of God, rejected church. So how will we live in it? How will we understand how people perceive us and accept some of that and reject some of it? But more than that, present a different way of living. Because that's what we're seeing in the gospel of Matthew. As we've walked through the story, Jesus comes in. He comes into a very religious culture. And the critics, the people that condemn him, the people that crucify him are the religious people. By and large, the leaders had rejected Jesus. And putting in our normal, today's currency, in our culture, if Jesus were to have come today, it would have been the churches. It would have been the church pastors and leaders. The Christian leaders in our country who would have rejected Christ. Now, we can't even fathom that. Because we think we're right. And we're pretty proud of the fact that we're right. And we're arrogant in ways that we don't even see our own blind spots. And today, Jesus is going to call that out. And he's going to shine a spotlight on our hypocrisy and our desire to be religious and forget the relationship with God. And I think today that as we journey through the story of Jesus, we're going to see that Jesus' condemnation of the religious people is really a critique on our own life as well. And we just might learn something from the life of Jesus. So Matthew 23, we're going to see the whole chapter. So our sermon's about two hours. Um, so I've alerted the children's ministry. They bought extra goldfish. Um, so what I want to do is I want to take a look at Jesus critiquing the self-righteous attitudes and the self-righteous actions of the Pharisees and the experts of the law. So in uh, your book, in your Bible, page 753 into 754, or the verses on the screen. First of all, these religious leaders, the Pharisees predominantly, they had self-righteous attitudes. And, and a couple scriptures on this. Chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now get the context here. Remember, Jesus has come into the city on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before he would be crucified on Friday, rise again the next Sunday. Jesus has come in. Everybody's waved the palm branches. They've welcomed him. All the people have shouted out, Hosanna, save us now. Hoshana, God, come and save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, son of David. They're crying out. They're worshiping Jesus. Religious leaders are angry and upset about that. 
Keep these kids quiet. And Jesus says, hey, if they don't shout it out, even the rocks are going to cry out, right? So, so the religious leaders are already upset. Then Jesus comes in on Monday and he cleans the temple out. And he clears the temple. The Sadducees are in control of the temple. And they're making a lot of money on God and God's people. And he just cleans that out, drives it out with the whip, overturning tables. He, it's upset, angry Jesus, right? And he comes through. And then Tuesday, he sits down with all the religious leaders in the temple and all the people. And the religious leaders, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of religious law there... They all come and they, they ask questions of Jesus because they want to trap him or trip him up. They want to trick him into saying something that will, you know, he will lose his credibility with the people, but they can't. And every question they ask, Jesus turns around and reveals these people don't even know the scriptures. And finally, we saw last week, Jesus gets his own question in there, which is, who is the Messiah? And then Jesus stands up and Jesus declares to thousands of people in this massive area called the temple. Where all the people have gathered to prepare themselves for the religious feast of feasts, the Passover. And he stands up and he declares this. He says this, the teachers of religious law. These are the scribes, the people that copy the law, the experts. They know every, everything about the law. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. Now, your translation might say they sit in the seat of Moses because that's literally what it means. But for so many years, people didn't understand that. What does it mean that they sit in the seat of Moses? Well, in the excavations around the Galilee area, the, the lake in the north part of Israel where Jesus did so much of his ministry, one of the cities, the villages is called Chorazin. And as they were excavating this in the synagogue, they found this, they found a seat, an actual seat with the inscription that said the seat of Moses. And then it made sense. That's what Jesus was referring to. This is my friend, Chuck Teat sitting there hanging out. Uh, by the way, he's not a Pharisee. Uh, and so, um, he's passed on. So he's with Jesus now and looking Jesus face to face, but you know, back in the day of Jesus, you would go to a synagogue to have instruction and worship and you would participate. One aspect of that is the religious leader, the scribe, the expert of the law or the Pharisee would stand up and read the law of Moses and then sit down in the seat and explain what Moses wanted the people to do. So they were sitting in the authority seat, the chair that was basically representing God. And so this is what Jesus says, going back to the text. It says, these people, they're the official interpreters. They, they sit in the seat of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I thought these were people hypocrites. Well, they are because they don't practice what they preach. They, they preach a good message, but they certainly don't live it. They don't follow the example. I mean, don't follow their example for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. That's what religion does. Religion is our own attempt to earn favor with God, to earn some kind of credits with God, some brownie points with God. If we go to church enough, if we read the Bible enough, if we pray enough, if we give enough, if we do enough, you know, like buy Girl Scout cookies and help old ladies across the street and all those things that God loves, you know, snickerdoodles, um, then what's going to happen is that we're going to somehow have God look at us and go, okay, you're nice enough. I'll let you in. That's religion. And, and Jesus came to kill religion. He came to destroy it because it's not religion. It's a relationship with God that what is what he wants. God doesn't want a bunch of people obeying their own self-made rules. He wants people falling in love with him because he's a father, God that loves us. And he wants a relationship through Jesus Christ, his son. And so these religious people were good at putting burdens on people. And if you've ever gone to a church that's hyper-religious, it's all about truth, not about grace. You'll know what I mean. 
It's a checklist of all these things and it weighs down on us because we can't fulfill all of those. And because we can't fulfill all those, guess what we do? We start to lie and we pretend and we become a hypocrite. So take a look at this. Everything they do is for show. That's the bottom line of Jesus' message today. How much of what you do, your spirituality, your Christianity, your worship, your practice of your faith, how much of it is just between you and God? And how much of it is so other people can see you and you can pat yourself on the back or maybe they'll come around and go, what a good boy, what a good girl. Man, God must really be proud to have you. We're lucky to have you. You're doing such good stuff. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. Now, here's a picture uh, that I shot. This is uh, at the Temple Mount. This is looking toward the Western Wall. Some people call it the Wailing Wall. And here's a young man with the prayer boxes on his forehead, on his arms, and a prayer shawl. Phylacteries or tefillin. And I've got uh, Andrew. Magnuson's going to come up. And, and so Andrew's going to help me out. So I was, I was looking. I was praying. God. Show me the biggest hypocrite in Sunrise Church today. I need the biggest Pharisee. And lo and behold, my buddy Andrew shows up. Just teasing. All right. So, Andrew, you're going to demonstrate for us these prayer boxes. Now, what I need to tell you up front is there's nothing wrong with this. This is a literal understanding of Deuteronomy chapter six, where God says, you know, write the scripture on your, your, your forehead and on your hands. And so this is a, a prayer box. This is a, a little scripture that's been blessed by a rabbi. It's in there. And so there's some scripture in there and he's literally wearing it on his forehead. And this is on your arm. So which is your weak arm? So are you right-handed? Okay. This is your weak one. Now we, we're not doing this properly because it would be on your flesh and we'd be saying a certain prayer. But the bottom line is then we wrap this around and there's a whole series of wraps. It's got to be seven times and you've got to say certain things. But when all is said and done, by the way, this would make it really hard to play guitar, wouldn't it? It would. It's like, it'd be hard. It'd be hard to shred when you're doing this so here we go so hold on to that and then that's the uh the the literal interpretation of having the scripture on your forehead and now on your hand and now we've got a prayer shawl back in the day of christ this was a little bit different today the average jewish person would wear it this way and it's the scripture reminder of the covering of god and you would bring it out here and you have tassels now specifically they would have tassels on their garment if you've ever been to a very religious jewish area i've seen it a lot in new york city or in israel they'll have on like a t-shirt an undergarment four corners the tassels wearing out so this is, you look gorgeous, my friend. Doesn't, Amber, what a hunk right there, right? <laughs> Terry, you raised him well. A good hypocrite. Um, and so, now again, again, this, this in and of itself is not a bad thing. What Jesus is saying is, they take the regular worship of God, the practice of God. In fact, scholars would even say that Jesus would have worn this because he was a, a teacher, he was a rabbi. But here's what they do with it. They take their boxes and they make them extra wide. Why? Because they want people to see how awesome they are in their worship of God. And then they take their tassels on the corner and they make them really long. Why? So they can walk around and everybody can admire them. So give us a clap here for Andrew. Very good. Awesome. And so 
What Jesus is saying, by the way, is that in our worship of God, if that bicep is so huge, you can't get that off. My goodness. That's what teaching in our Hillsborough school system will do for you, man. Right there. Awesome. Make you strong. And so what Jesus is saying is, let's go back to the text. They do this for show. Even their heartfelt worship for God is now turned into an act. It's turned into something that they do so other people can see it. It's like this. They carry the big, serious King James Bible around with them. You ever, you know, you used to have like a wheelbarrow to take them to church. They were massive, right? They, they do this. They put bumper stickers everywhere on their car about how much they love God. They let everybody know they wear the Christian t-shirts. You know, they get the tattoos, you know, and with Hebrew on it. You got to have Hebrew because then it's really cool, right? And so the idea is that you want people to look at you and go, oh, there's a devout follower of God. But when you do that, you miss the entire point. The point is to have a worship, a love for God, not to do it for show. They love to sit in the head tables at banquets and the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Oh, rabbi so-and-so, it's so good to see you, rabbi so-and-so. Oh, rabbi so-and-so, it's, it's nice to see rabbi. Well, let's have a rabbi so-and-so over to our house because I want to tell our neighbors we had rabbi so-and-so over because the rabbi is really important. They're basically walking around with pedigrees. They're wanting everybody to know in our culture the letters before your name and after. After your name, they want to see the plaque of how important you are. And they wear that plaque around their neck. Jesus says everything they do is for show. Now that's their attitude, but in their actions, how they live it out. It's a really cool word that Jesus uses. Before we do that, I want to talk about the Pharisees for a second, because I'm just going on with this Pharisee thing. They're hypocrites, but, but who are the Pharisees? There were religious groups, uh, we've seen them already, Essenes and Sadducees, uh, Herodians, a secular group. Uh, we've seen the Zealots, a, a religious extremist group, and the Pharisees. Well, the Talmud, the oral writings or oral interpretation that got written down of the time period of Jesus describes seven kinds of Pharisees, five of them hypocritical and two of them worshipful of God. And so I, I want to explain this. It's really clear. And if you know your scriptures, you know your Bible, you know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a lot of this shows up in there. So the Talmud describes the, the shoulder Pharisee. Now, what's a shoulder Pharisee? A shoulder Pharisee is the kind of Pharisee that he wears his worship of God as a display for all to see. Like he's wearing it on his shoulders. And he carries his worship of God so everybody is aware of it. The way he serves, the way he sings, the way he prays, the way he gives. He wants everyone to see it like it's a badge of honor. Then there is the stumbling Pharisee. The stumbling Pharisee. Awesome to see. They're walking around and they've torn their clothes like they're repentant. They've put dirt on their face because they're fasting before God. God and they want you to see how much they're fasting. Then they sprinkle dust or ashes on their head and they want you to go, oh, little kids, look at that Pharisee. He's, he's worshiping God by fasting and humbling himself. No, he's just putting on a show. And then there's the bleeding nose Pharisee. You gotta love these guys. They don't want to lust. And so when they're walking down the road and they see a pretty woman, they lock, you know, lock their eyes and then they slam themselves into a post. Literally, that's exactly what they were known for. And they'd walk around with blood running down their noses or in their face. And it's like, did you have a fight? No, I'm worshiping God. I'm not lusting. It's like, wow, you're really, you're really awesome, right? And then there's the, announcing Pharisee. It's time for me to sing my song to God. Would you gather around to hear my awesome voice? I'm going to pray now. 
Would you like to hear my prayer? Of course you would, because it's the best prayer you've ever heard. I'm going to be giving my tithe to God now. Would you like to see how much I give to God? They're, they're like telegraphing their worship of God in front of people, right? That's what they love to do, because they want people to know it. The accountant Pharisee. I confess I have a little bit of this in my heart. They keep track of everything they do for God. Uh, they write down, I did three hours of Bible reading today. I memorized more of the Torah. I prayed long prayers. I gave so much. They write everything down so that they can look at that and go, wow, I love God. I'm so awesome in my love of God. And we all have some of these, right? We do this internally. It's the hypocritical nature of humanity. Again, if you think that hypocrisy is a Christian issue, you haven't woken up. (laughs) Hypocrisy is a human being issue. We all are hypocrites inside and outside the church because we all want people to look at us and love us from the outside. And if we fake it, whether it's because we know God or don't know God, we're just being hypocrites. Now, there's two groups of Pharisees that were really good Pharisees. They were the Pharisees of fear and the Pharisees of love. Fear meaning the respect of God. Like the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They were a Pharisee of fear. They had deep-seated respect of God. And so they worshipped him. And their life was a result of that, living it out. And the Pharisee of love, which they were so won over by the love of God that they would choose. God, Father God would choose the Jewish people. And he would call Abraham. And we would have this faith. And we would be a light to the Gentiles. And they responded in love. So when you think of a Pharisee, we think of a hypocrite, but that's not really synonymous. It has become in our culture. Now, you know, when you think about, and this, this might blow your mind, when you think about all the groups, Rhodians, the secular group, Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you know who Jesus most aligns himself with? It's the Pharisees. Not in the hypocrisy, but in the teaching and the way of life. You think, but I thought Jesus was always fighting the Pharisees. Well, put it in a family sense. I have three boys and they argue incessantly. Don't you, Seth? Absolutely. About everything. All right. But if somebody were to come attack one of them, all three of them would gang up on the person. Right. And so Jesus is having a tussle with his spiritual kind. Right. And he's he's critiquing them because, again, to be a Pharisee isn't synonymous with being a hypocrite. But many of them were. And so Jesus is calling them out because at one point. And this is for you and for me. At one point, at one point, they started on a journey of knowing and loving God. And somewhere along the way, they turned a corner and it became about the show. And so that's what Jesus actually says. In fact, literally, he uses the word hypocrite. Take a look at their actions. And I want to show you this this picture. This is a a recreation of some Greek plays. And so in the Greek theater, uh, before Jesus, the Roman theater, by the time of Jesus, a person who would play a part was called a hypocrite. It was not a negative term. It was just a, a, it was a theatrical term and they would wear masks. And so because there were very few actors, there were no women that were allowed to be actors. The men played all the parts they would come out and they would wear a mask and they would be the funny person and they would come out and they would tell the jokes and they would do this. And then they would go back behind the stage and then they would put the other mask on and they'd come out and tell the sob stories, the tragedy. And everybody expected that it was the mask that was being represented. In fact, after a while, you forgot, right? Don't we forget? Don't we forget that like guys like Al Pacino, they're not Al Pacino, you know, they're just guys, but we look at movies, right? We look at people, we look at actors, we look at actresses and we go, wow, wow. They're, they're that person. Cause that's what the movie does to us. We forget the real person and we get sucked into the play. We get sucked into the story and we start to feel like that person really is the person. They're just an actor or actress playing a part. 
And that's what Jesus calls out. He says, all they are are hypocrites. And now, when you study history, this is the first time at least we have recorded when the term hypocrite began to be seen in a negative light. And now we're really going to see it. We're going to see seven times in this passage as we fly through it. Jesus call out the religious, the Pharisees, the experts of the law for being hypocrites. And he gives them this heartbreaking news. It's called a woe or a sorrow. Let's take a look at these seven of them. Keeping people from a relationship with God. The first thing Jesus says is woe to you. What sorrow awaits you. Because you keep people from the very God you're supposed to worship. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites, mask wearers, pretenders, fakers. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you won't let other people enter either. You shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, you will be severely punished. You religious people, you come up to widows. Widows are protected by Father God. Widows and orphans, he has a special heart and care for them. And you come in and you swindle them out of their property. And then you go and sell them and then they're homeless. And then you stand in the synagogues and you pray your awesome prayers. And you go to the temple and you stand around in public and everybody goes, wow, what an awesome guy you are. You're a hypocrite. You've got some serious sorrow awaiting you because you think you're fooling God. You might be fooling people, but you're not fooling God. And God is going to judge that action. A second woe, a second sorrow is that you convert people to a life of hypocrisy. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, fakers, pretenders, actors, actresses, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. That's pretty strong, if you ask me, right? But Jesus calls it like he sees it, right? Then the next woe, the next sorrow, blindly leading people to follow man-made traditions. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you. For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but it is the, it's binding to swear by the gold in the temple, blind fools. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? He, he says more on that I don't have on here. But the bottom line, he says, you get caught in minuscule, ridiculous little traditions. Well, I, I, I swear by the temple. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I swear by the gold in the temple. It's like, ooh, man, you, that's a better swear than me, right? It's like, why swear at all? Why make vows at all? You get caught up in these little rituals and little rules. You know, church people do this all the time. In my lifetime, like which translation of the Bible are you going to read? You know, when I, was, when I was a young person, brand new in the faith, somebody gave me an NIV. It's like, NIV, <laughs> why would you read the NIV? I'm reading the New American Standard Version. It's much more accurate, to which it is. Who cares? You're not more spiritual. But if you really want to love Jesus and the Apostle Paul, you'll read the King James. Because that's what Paul wrote in, right? No. No, it hasn't been around forever. Uh, songs, worship. I, the culture wars, the, the, you know, the worship wars were going on in my age. In my, you know, if you want to really love God, you sing by a hymn book. Because that's how Peter led worship, right? No, hymn books have only been around a couple hundred years. Hymns have only been around a couple hundred years. But it's been so codified into our culture that we now think it's the right thing to do. And if somebody does something else, choruses, how weak. How narrow of you to sing such fluffy stuff about God. We respect God. And we sing about our firm foundation, Right? With a certain cadence. Who cares? Who cares? What will lead your heart into worship is the question. What will connect with your culture is your question. But we create this tradition and we go, if you don't match my tradition, which is only a personal preference style, by the way, 
then all of a sudden we look down on people. We're doing the same kind of thing. Another woe, another sorrow. Number four, focusing on the details, but missing the main point. I love this. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, fakers, pretenders, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. So you go to your homes, Pharisees, you teachers of religious law, and in your kitchen window, you have these little herb gardens and you know, it's growing in you. You, you, you cut it, you cut it down with your little scissors and you lay it all out and you go, uh, 10%, put a little baggie and you take it to the temple and give it to God. And then you forget the big stuff. Like it's on our walls. This is what it says in the old Testament to walk humbly, love mercy, do justice. Micah six, eight, this is Matthew or Jesus repeating the old Testament. This is the most important stuff that you would have a heart of justice, have a heart of mercy and faith, walk humbly before God. Yeah, you should tithe, yes, but don't neglect, neglect the more important things. Blind guides, I love this. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but then you swallow a camel. That's a joke, by the way. That's a hyperbole. That's so far apart. You're supposed to laugh at that. And in, in Aramaic, it's a play on words between a gnat and a camel. It's just the two letters being reversed and everybody's laughing. Because it's ridiculous. Imagine a Pharisee straining out, getting a little coffee filter, straining it out. You know, I don't want a gnat in there. Because that gnat is bad, and then you eat a camel instead, right? That's, that's how bad it is. He goes on with the next woe, the next sorrow. Looking good on the outside, but having a corrupt heart. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, fakers, pretenders, mask wearers. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean. So we, we were in Cuba, and David and, and Nelson, Pastor Nelson and myself, and we're, we're there at an exit, kilometer 259. I'll not forget this, because that was the beginning of four days of sickness. And, and we were drinking Cuban coffee, because it was cheap, and it was great. And, and so we go up there to the brist of the guy behind the counter, and he's washing the cups out. You got to know, we only drank bottled water. Because of the parasites, okay? We were really, really, man, we had a great trip. We were fine until this last couple days. And we get there and the guy's washing the cups out. And the water is contaminated. And he sets them on the, on the rack. And then I ask for the coffee. And a minute later, I look back and those cups are not there anymore. And he's putting coffee in those cups. And so, I'm, you know, we all gingerly drink the coffee and we all seriously got sick. Because there was something dirty on the inside of the cup, now on the inside of us. <laughs> you know, working its way through our system. Shouldn't you be careful not just to have the outside of the cup look clean, but the inside, right? You, you, go, to, you go to Panera after church and you go to lunch there and you sit down, you get a bread bowl and you're nice looking bread bowl. It's awesome. And you put soup in there. But on the way to the pouring of the soup, you look in and there's mud caked on the inside of the bread bowl. Because we want to support the bread bowl and make it look nice, right? <laughs> like what? Uh, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to drink from a cup like that. What Jesus was saying, why would you want to worship a God like that? A God that accepts your filth on the inside, just he only is concerned about your outside. Why don't you worship the true God who's more concerned about the inside than the outside? Because if you get the inside right, the outside will be fine. In fact, which is something we should always just be reminded of. Our own hearts are far from God. On our own. Jeremiah says this, the prophet says, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who could ever understand this heart that we have? Who could ever know it? Who could ever master it? There's a brokenness in our hearts. The Bible calls it sin. That is a sickness that has invaded all of humanity. From birth, we have sin in our lives. And it, it's, it's really the fault and the result of the sin in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve worked its way all through our system. 
And we have it, you have it, I have it. We're born into sin, we live a life of sin. Sin is rebellion against God in our attitudes and actions. And then the only way to be clean is not to scrub ourselves clean on the outside and to be religious. It's to have Jesus scrub our lives on the inside out to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from our unrighteous acts. And then we're truly clean. I would hope that we're not just coming to church to look good and to feel better about ourselves. I would hope we're coming to church to hear about Jesus, the Savior that died on the cross for us so that we could have a new inside, a clean slate. I like how the prophet Isaiah says it, like new fallen, fresh snow without any blemish, no stain. And here we are clean and then on the outside we'll be clean. If you're here and you've been working overtime to force yourself to look good on the outside, please give that up because that will crash and burn one day. Just give it up today and go to the real answer, which is the Bible's answer, which is Father God's answer for you, which is receive Jesus' forgiveness of your sins. And then that will clean you up on the inside. And trust me, it will work its way out. So this is what Jesus cries against. Number six, the next woe or sorrow, acting spiritual to cover up your own sin. What sorrow, woe to you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites, fakers, pretenders. You're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Now, I love Jesus. He's got so many pictures, but they're the pictures of the day. If he's standing on the temple and he's teaching, or if he's on the steps teaching, he's looking behind the people and there's the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever seen a picture of the Mount of Olives, half of the Mount of Olives is filled with crypts, with tombs. And they're made of limestone, a white stone, Jerusalem stone. And they're brilliant and they look beautiful, but they're filled with dead people. And then if you go to other places, they would paint them white. Why? Because the Jewish people had serious rules about hanging out with dead people, right? That would make you impure. That would, that would make you religiously unclean. And so you wouldn't go near a dead body. You would stay far away from a tomb. And Jesus says, this is what you look like, religious people. You look great on the outside, but you're filthy, stinking dead on the inside. You're dead on the inside. You're a decaying corpse on the inside. That's that's pretty harsh. He says, outwardly you look righteous, like righteous people. But inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. He's talking to the religious people of his day, the religious leaders. We'll call them the pastors, the church leaders. But they were then leading other people along the same journey. Finally, number seven, the last sorrow or woe. Pretending to honor God's people, but really truly destroying the work of God. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, fakers, pretenders, actors, mask wearers, liars. For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have never joined them in killing the prophets. And look what he says. That is not true. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. You know what he's saying? He's saying all you religious people are just like the religious people of the past. When Jeremiah walked in, guess what you did? You killed him. When Isaiah walked in, guess what? Calling out your sin, you killed him. All the prophets from the first one to the last one, you, you couldn't stand their message. And so you could silence them only by killing them. And here I am as the final prophet, as Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Christ, standing in front of you. And you can't stand my message. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to do the same thing your ancestors did, and you're going to kill me. 
And that happened just a couple days afterwards. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Ouch. This is Jesus' harsh condemnation. I want you to hear it clearly. Not of Jewish people, please. Of religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of the nation. Jesus is not being anti-Semitic. He is Semitic, okay? He's a Jew. Speaking to Jews. Matthew's a Jew, writing to Jews. We as Gentiles glimpse in. Let's not get a wrong attitude here. It wasn't God's condemnation of the Jewish people. It was of the hypocrisy and the rejection of the Messiah that had started generations before. Now for you and for me, Jesus just spouted off seven woes, seven sorrows. Do any of them resonate in your heart? Do you have any likenesses? Do you have any resemblance to those? Do you, in your own practices, do you kind of look, look a little bit like that? Are there days you go to church and when you pull into the parking lot, you go to the glove box and get your mask out and you come to church and you wear the mask and you play the part and you get back in and once you're off the parking lot, you put the mask back in the glove box and then you go to work on Monday morning and you get out a different mask and you wear this mask or you go to school on Monday morning and you look like this to everybody. Everybody knows my friends. You're the only one that thinks you're fooling anybody. You're a hypocrite, right? And we all have this in our heart because we all pretend and we all fake. Jesus has a heart for us, though. Jesus, thankfully, is the only one that never was a hypocrite. And he has an answer for us and he has a solution and he has a desire for us. Look what he says as he wraps up this last bit of text. It's a it's a cry before he. We look at this. I I just want to ask you two questions quickly or look at options for you. If you've found yourself in this, what are you going to do? As I see this all the time as a pastor, just fake it. Just keep faking it. Live as though nothing is wrong. Behave as it all is well. Because what you've been doing has been working, right? At least seemingly working. And it'll seemingly work for a while until it stops working and crashes and everybody realizes that you're a faker. Today's a good day to stop being a faker. Today's a good day to take off your mask and throw it away. Today's a good day to let Jesus and everybody else see the real you and come and receive forgiveness because that's what we need to do. We need to let God get to the core issue of our heart and let him solve our hypocrisy issue because it isn't a mask issue. It's a heart issue because we're not willing to let God see who we really are. Why don't we do that today? Because he loves us. Here are these words from the end of chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, my children, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chickens beneath her wings. In other words, I have a tender love and heart for you. And I've wanted to come and guide you. I wanted to provide for you, but you keep rejecting me. As my people, you keep pouring your love into other idols. You wouldn't let me. And now look, your house, speaking of the temple, is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Matthew 23, no shock, goes right into Matthew 24. We're going to see that next week. And that is Jesus talking about the future. Forty years after Jesus says this, the temple is destroyed as the Romans come in. And they demolish everything in this city. They expel the Jews from the land. It's 1900 years until the Jews come back in 1948. 
Jesus begins to talk about the tribulation in chapter 24. It's going to be great. If you ever want to know what happens next, come next weekend. And we're going to see Jesus talk about the end times when he finally reappears and everybody cries out. And the Jewish people turn to him finally and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they call him Messiah, the son of David. I, I, I don't know what you need to work on today. I know what I need to work on. Even preparing this message has been one of those, dang it, I've got to talk about that. What's wrong with my heart? Writing thoughts down, looking at my own life, letting God examine my heart. It's like, man, I thought I worked on that. I thought I got that one taken care of. Now that was just my pride that convinced me and gave me a blind spot. <laughs> i got to work on these things. What is it for you? Um, yeah, again, you can fake it. You can keep powering through. It'll, that will keep working for a while, my friends, until it all crashes down. And in a glorious crash, you'll become face to face with yourself and your sinfulness. You know, I don't know. Is your marriage a sham? Is your Christianity fake? Is your outward appearance to people in the community just a show? As you come to church, is it all pretend? What is not going to continue on when you crash? The play? The part you've been playing, man, just drop it today. Come to Jesus. I, I love this last verse, and we'll close with this. This is in Matthew 11. From the message, it says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you just burnt out on religion? Because that's what religion will do to you. It'll burn you out. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus offers up to you a life that is not a burden, a life that is not a show, a life that is not religious, a life that is built on your intimate relationship with him that then fleshes itself out into a community, into a culture, into a city, into a county, into our country in a way that people look at you and they see your deep love for God, your deep fear for God, like those last two Pharisees, that you have a heart for God and a heart for others. But it's only going to happen if you come to him because he's inviting you to come to him. He's saying, come unto me, anybody that's just worn out from faking it, and I'll give you a brand new life. Let's pray together. Father God, um, we're, we're all fakers. And if we're denying it, that's the biggest fake right there. We've all fallen short of your perfect standard. We've all sinned. We've all violated your perfect rules. But today you revealed to us your love in Jesus. You've shown us. Jesus is willing to call us out for our sin and our pretend lifestyle. Jesus is willing to give us a fresh start. But it only comes with honesty. It only comes with transparency and vulnerability before you, God. If we're here today and we have been faking our whole spirituality, we're a hypocrite. We're a Pharisee. We're an expert in the law, but we're wearing a mask. And it's not the real us. God, cause us to run away from that today, to drop the mask and run to Jesus. You have said that on the cross, he carried all of our sin, all of our shame. He bore all of our sorrow on his own body so that we could freely come and receive 
not religion, but a relationship with you, a forgiveness, a cleansed inside that's going to change the outside. You tell us in your word that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And I pray we do that right now. And we declare that Jesus is our savior, our Lord, our forgiver, our leader. You will cleanse us. You will give us a brand new life. And Father, for the the many other people in this room, myself included, we've been walking with you for years. Point out our blind spots. Point out our hypocrisy. Point out our masks. And may we lay those down and come back to Jesus for the only true salvation, which is his forgiveness, his cleanse of the inside, cleaning our cup to then once again be free to live a life before others. Not perfect, but a life forgiven. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and the strong, harsh words, not spoken in anger, but spoken in just such despair for people who would choose fakery over a true relationship with you. May we never do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.